Amen. Hallelujah. God is good. And all the time. Come on. GP, are you with me? <laughs> Was listening to some Kirk Franklin in the week and some Mary Mary. Can you tell? Amen. Has uh, Sunday school been dismissed yet? Not yet. Okay, Sunday school, you may evacuate. Yeah, Reba, we call it the great evacuation. And it's so good to have uh, our visitors here with us this morning. Welcome. Feel at home. Don't rush off. We have refreshments, I think, under the gazebo outside. Uh, good to see my sister Esther, Yay! all the way from PMB, and Leroy again. So good to see you, making me all nostalgic up here. And uh, I think the Lord's trying to make us His bride, eh? It's been incredibly hot. For the first time, I'm um, I'm sweating and. You know, playing the guitar and I'm sweating. <laughs> yeah, but the rain is coming, Dino says. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been giving you a heads up that we uh, are into the series of Daniel. Uh, who of you have been reading Daniel so far? You've got a head start? Yes. Come on, don't be shy. Lift up that hand. I see that hand. Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, I've been having such an incredible time studying Daniel. A uh, large part of me feels that it's really unfortunate that I have to come and preach around Daniel <laughs> because I've been enjoying it so much. Uh, the wife thinks I've left her for Daniel. Yeah, I've just been missing some midnights and some hours of the night and she's like, "Hun, when are you coming back to bed? And Daniel just got me up all night. It's amazing how rich the Word of God is. And so, um, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I'm kind of going to lay a foundation for the next few weeks um, for all the teachings we will share with you. So, I'm primarily going to attempt and try to put us in the historical setting and try and give us a picture of the main theme of Daniel and the main truth and the main lesson that God wants us to learn. And so in Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to start reading from verse 1. When you're there, please give me an amen. amen. <laughs> Bible reads as follows. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, or eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand and had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them daily provisions of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And the three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names, he gave Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs 
that he might not defile himself. Now, Daniel, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who has appointed you food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your, who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this manner and tested them 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away the portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of the king of Cyrus. Amen. Amen. Can we pray? Holy Spirit, we need you. Father, you promised the Holy Spirit to them who ask. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you make the word alive to us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the wondrous things of your word. Help us understand your word. Help us mix your word with faith. Help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers also. And Lord, I pray you be with this young aspiring preacher who has to delve into perhaps one of the most complex books in all of scripture. Guide his mind, quicken his tongue, fill his heart with revelation and truth, and let him speak as an oracle of God. We pray, Lord, that even as we hear your word, we'll develop a hunger and a taste for your word. That we may hide your word in our hearts and meditate in it all day, that we might not sin against you. So let the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And the church of God says. Amen, amen and amen. If I ever get to the point of this message, it's titled The Sovereignty of God. And so, at first, we're going to examine the author and writing of Daniel. And then we're going to get into our text. Is that fine? So Daniel was written in the 6th century, 605 years before Christ was born and estimated possibly also 607 years before Christ was born. During the 6th century, the Mayan kingdom and, and the Mayan civilization was, was alive and thriving in, in Mexico. During the 6th century, Buddha and Confucius lived during that time. And during the 6th century, it says that there was an incredible global... Uh, 
freeze over. The world was never that cold at the, at the temperatures during the 6th century. Also during the 6th century, China, after 150 years, became a united nation again. And so the 6th century, Daniel is located in this period of time, 600 years before Christ was born. When you begin to examine the book itself, and when you begin, begin to look at the New Testament, you'll find that there's no other book of prophecy quoted more often by any New Testament writer than the book of Daniel. What Revelations is to the New Testament, Daniel is to the Old Testament. However, no prophecy can be understood apart from the book of Daniel. Daniel is divided into twos. It's written in two languages. It's addressed to two audiences. It's written in two genres. And it has two chiasms, which is a literary device that we'll explain in a few moments. Daniel predicts the events of the second century up until the return and second coming of Christ with such precision and with such detail that critics are still trying to date Daniel at a later age. Daniel chapter 11 contains the most comprehensive, detailed, precise prophecy in all of Scripture. It gives us an apocalyptic view of history. It gives us the exact timeline when the Messiah would come and when he would enter into Jerusalem. Nine out of twelve of Daniel's chapters revolve around dreams and prophetic dreams. Amongst its distinctions is that it's, div it's divided into ten major sections spread across twelve chapters. Because Daniel is, is written over two languages and two genres, scholars have been trying to implicate two authors. He writes some sections in Hebrew and he writes some sections in Aramaic. And he does this throughout the book of Daniel. And so scholars have been trying to suggest that given the details of the prophecies, that it must have been written by another author at another later age. But when you begin to examine the structure of the book of Daniel, you will come to the conclusion that it is impossible for there to have been two authors. Because he locks this entire book in a literary device called a chiasm. There's a mix between genres. The first six chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 6, deals with an historical narrative. He's telling a story of him in Babylon and his friends and colleagues in Babylon. And in between chapters 7 and 12, he gives us four apocalyptic visions. So he writes in a, in a genre known to be apocalyptic. So the key to understanding the book of Daniel is actually recognizing that it is locked by a structure, by a literary structure called a chiasm. So Daniel has two chiasms, and I want to project this on the screen in a few minutes. Where's my projector lady? A chiasm is defined as an idea or concept or grammatical construction that is presented and then subsequently repeated, but in an inverted way. So I'm going to illustrate this in a simpler way. You've heard the phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Yeah. That is a chiasm. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And if you're familiar with the works of Milton and Shakespeare, they were they were famous for using chiasms. Shakespeare would say something like, she went into the country 
into the town she went. Biblical authors would frequently use the structure of a chiasm. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 is a classic example. Bible says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by his blood will be shed. Jesus used the chiasm in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27, where he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the subsequent statement reflects and almost mirrors the other concept and statements in an inverted way. And so when you look and examine the entire book of Daniel, you find he writes in two languages, not just to appeal to a broader audience and to appeal to the Gentile world who commonly spoke Aramaic, but he, he, he wrote this with an intention and a purpose. And we'll get to see that in a moment. If you could project that for us, uh, please, babe. And so, in chapter 1, he gives us a prologue. And the prologue is from verse 1 to 22, and he writes that in Hebrew. Then between chapters 2, verses 1 to 49, he gives us an introduction to the chiasm. He writes that in Aramaic. And then you will see between chapters 3, verses 1 to 30, Daniel is speaking about how Nebuchadnezzar witnesses God's servants, the Hebrew boys, being delivered. Then in chapter 4, he shows us how Nebuchadnezzar is judged and how he loses his mind and he grazes in, in the grass for like seven years in a mad state. And then he starts off in chapter 5 with Belshazzar judge, which is Nebuchadnezzar's son. And then in chapter 6, he shows how Daniel is res rescued under Darius. So can you see the pattern? Nebuchadnezzar sees it, God's servants rescued. Nebuchadnezzar is judged, then Belshazzar is judged, then Darius sees Daniel rescued. That's a chiasm. Then in chapter 7, he gives us an introduction to Daniel's vision on the four kingdoms and the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to detail the post-Babylonian kingdoms in chapter 8. In chapter 9, he shows how and reveals in the vision how Jerusalem is restored. And then in chapters 10, he, deals for, uh, he details for us Again, the post-Babylonian kingdoms, another chiasm. And so, what's important to understand is how he locks these two chiasms. He locks these two chiasms by the introduction of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, he discusses the role of God's eternal kingdom and the role of his saints. And I want to read something for you in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. He presents to us a figure. And he says, I was watching in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him he gave dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom will be like one that shall not be destroyed. And it's in this passage in chapter 7 that Daniel presents to us for the first time the Son of Man. And so in between this chiasm, the purpose for why he wrote it in the structure was to present to us the Son of Man. And this was a concept and a title that Jesus often designated to himself. He often referred to himself as the Son of Man, but he did it in a more subtle way. Because if he went around and said, hey, I'm the Son of God, they would stone him immediately. 
but in a more subtle way he referred to himself as the son of man and if you were a scholar of depth and a reader of the scriptures you would know that he did not just throw around this title casually because there were only two prophets who used this title son of man well both of them were exilic prophets they were prophets of the exile of the babylonian exile it was ezekiel but ezekiel never referred to himself as a son of man it was god who referred to ezekiel as the son of man Ezekiel was a prophet who received an abundance of visions and of angels and encounters with angels. He would see, um, you know, into the future. He was, he was a prophet who was just gifted that way and would encounter angels and cherubs and seraphims. And, and he saw this vision of, of a mighty river of God and a temple of God. And he would see the, the vision of the wheel in the middle of a wheel with an angel with eyes all over it. And God would refer to him as a son of man to humble him. You were son of the earth. You were son of, you were son of man. But Daniel... Daniel, the term is used to refer to a messianic figure that would stand before the ancient of days. And this figure would be given all power, all authority, and all nations, and every tongue would worship him. It's recorded that Jesus referred to himself as the son of man over 80 times over 80 times in the gospel jesus referred to him himself as the son of man in mark chapter 10 he says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and gave his life as a ransom Again, he says, the Son of Man will come in glory. Again, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? So whenever he referred to himself as the Son of Man, he did it in the sense of God sending his kingdom. God establishing his kingdom here on earth. So Daniel chapter 7 serves as a link between these two chiasms and the purpose as to why Daniel wrote the, his book in such a way was also to reveal Jesus to us and that Jesus will be the center of civilization. Amen. Amen. Now let's talk about Daniel. Who was Daniel? When we get into chapter 1, the first fact we are introduced to about Daniel is that Daniel is from royal descent. Because King Nebuchadnezzar asked his chief of eunuchs to bring all the noblemen and the descendants of, of the royal tribe of Judah to him. And when you look at this passage and when you look at this, you understand that, that Daniel was, was from the tribe of Judah. And that is not an insignificant detail because God promised that the scepter would not depart from Judah. And so Daniel, as a young boy, scholars speculate that he was born during the time of King Josiah's reform, that he was possibly between the age of 13 and 17 years old when he's brought captive. Daniel's name means, my God is judge. Daniel falls into one of three categories of prophets. You have pre-exilic prophets, you have exilic prophets, and you have post-exilic prophets. Pre-exilic prophets would be before the exile of Babylon, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Exilic prophets would be Ezekiel and Daniel, and post-exilic prophets would be Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. When you open up the book of Daniel, Daniel is a teenager. When you close the book of Daniel, he is an old man. Daniel's ministry spanned for over 70 years. Daniel served and survived four different kings. King Nebuchadnezzar, then his son, his successor, uh, Belshazzar, 
then he served Darius the Mede and then he served King Cyrus the king of Persia and verse 21 of chapter 1 tells us from the word go that Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus and during this time and period Daniel became an advisor to all kings he was a government administrator and he was a prophet of God despite many trying to uh, not refer to him as a prophet because um, the Israelites today don't acknowledge him as a prophet Jesus referred to him as a prophet and during the 70 year period the whole life of Daniel the Bible gives us no dirt on him no dirt not once over a 70 year span does the scripture tell us that Daniel faltered in his faith you can read about Abraham and you'll come to discover the scandal of Hagar <laughs> read about Moses and you get to see Moses had some anger issues some road rage and striking the rock and God forbid him to enter into the land of promise you get to hear about David oh you get to discover his deed with Bathsheba but when we come to Daniel we have nothing nothing you see our our faith let, let, let's put it this way when you look at Daniel's life Daniel's faith and his walk with God not only survived the tests and not only survived the adversity but his life and his faith and his walk with God survived the test of time. Because time is the ultimate critic. And it's those who endure to the end that will be saved here. The clean sheet, he was consistent in his walk with God. He was in it for the long run. Wasn't a, a sprint for him. He was in for the long run for the marathon they say the first virtue of any soldier is endurance and so we're building up to the time when Daniel was taken away captive leading up to this time it's important to understand why God had handed Judah over to Babylon <laughs> for two reasons firstly they broke the covenant of God they grossly violated every one of the Ten Commandments and they gave themselves completely into idolatry and so for us to, to understand the nature and patience and 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 setting of Daniel it's important for us to understand the trail and key events that led up to this moment 1000 BC King David rules and he sits on the throne of the house of Israel Israel was a united nation 970 years to 930 years BC his son Solomon comes into the into the, the throne and he rules over the house of Israel Solomon then builds a temple a beautiful temple dedicates it in Jerusalem Solomon passes on and his sons fight over the kingdom Jeroboam and Rehoboam divide the kingdom and they split the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and then we have now Israel which is the northern kingdom and we have Judah which is now the southern kingdom and so Israel the northern kingdom eventually fell and was subdued and literally unplanted by the Egyptians because they continuously ignored God's pleas for repentance and God's call for repentance 
We have an idea of the idolatry found in 2 Kings verse 7, uh, chapter 17, where the Bible says they abandoned, this is speaking to, to Israel, Israel abandoned all the commands given by the Lord their God, crafted for themselves and cast images of two calves constructed and constructed an Asherah. They worshipped all the stars of, in heaven and they served Baal. They passed their sons and daughters through the fire. In other words, they sacrificed their children. And they practiced divination and they cast spells and they sold themselves to the practice which the Lord considered to be evil, thereby provoking the Lord. And as a result, the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. And so God used Egypt to totally annihilate and destroy Israel. Then he addresses Judah in these same passages. He says, but you, Judah, you also did not keep my commands. Instead, you lived the lifestyle that Israel had chosen. you following suit of Israel. So the Bible says, the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and handed them over to the control of plunderers until he had thrown him away from the presence and then he had ripped them away from the heritage of David. And then in Jeremiah chapter 3, he addresses the kingdom of Judah. And he's, Judah was in a more favorable position because Judah had seen and observed what happened to Israel. But God says, you failed to repent. Backsliding Israel, in chapter 3, verse 11, God says, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than the treacherous Judah. In other words, Judah had become more steeped in their idolatry to such an extent that when Ezekiel's prophesying, God's showing him visions of the measure of the idolatry. And he's seeing these 70 elders in the temple of the Lord uh, with an idol to false gods, worshipping in a secret chamber. And the Lord showed Ezekiel all these abominations and he says, I am going to judge Judah. The idolatry have progressed to such a state where they were sacrificing their kids and they were defiling the temple of God. And to make matters worse, they violated the land Sabbath command. What is the land Sabbath command? In chapter five, 25 of Leviticus, God says, six years sow your fields. And for six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land must rest. The, the land must remain fallow. Don't touch the land. Learn to depend on me. Then in chapter 26 of Leviticus, he gives the consequence to violating the land Sabbath command. He says, I will turn your cities into ruins if you violate this command. And I will take no pleasure in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste of the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. This is, this is a consequence for violating this, this command. And all the time it lays desolate the land will have its rest until my Sabbaths have been fulfilled. And God is saying this, if you don't keep the Sabbath land command, I will enforce it. I will enforce it. And so Israel is brought into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Why 70 years? Because after every sixth year, for 490 years, they did not honor the land Sabbath rest. So for 490 years, they had violated this command. And when you calculate and count 
the years they missed over 490 years you get 70 years 70 years that God allowed and enforced a land rest on, on Judah Jameson Fawcett and Brown tell us that, that the exact number of years of Sabbaths over 490 years takes us back to Saul the period of Saul and the exact number of years when Israel was sent back and Judah was sent back into their land it's interesting to note that their idolatry and their Sabbath breaking were linked because you can't break one law without breaking another and so Jeremiah prophesies of the judgment to come He's prophesying and, and, and he's warning the king of Judah of the impending judgment. Isaiah comes onto the scene in 740 BC and he warns of the judgment coming against Israel and against the northern and southern kingdom. And then we see his prophecies fulfilled in 722 BC. And Isaiah dies. And now we get to 626 BC Jehoiakim was appointed the king of Judah by Pharaoh Necho he was the second son of King Josiah if you know anything about King Josiah you will know that he totally reformed the nation of Israel Israel and all their kings did wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord continuously. But it was King Josiah who stood against the tide and restored the Sabbaths and restored the worship back to God. And so here we have Jehoiakim who has this, this godly heritage, this godly example to follow. But he fails to live up to his father's example Bible says Jeremiah warns him and writes in the words of the prophecy calling him to repent and the nation to repent and telling him about the Babylonian captivity that 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 Judah is about to experience and what does he do he ignores it he cuts up the scroll and he throws it in the fire Jeremiah writes it out again and sends it back to him and he totally ignores God's warnings of judgment over and over again and probably one of the saddest things I've seen and one of the greatest tragedies I've seen in this life is when children fail to live up to the godly example that their parents have set heartbreaking in 606 we get to chapter 1 606 605 the Bible tells us that it was in the third year reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it now the question is who is Nebuchadnezzar his name is Arcadian Nebuchadnezzar is actually a Hebrew transliteration of his name which is Nebuchadnezzar Uzzah sounds like I'm speaking in tongues yeah. <laughs> and his name means Nebu protect my crown or protect my reign Nebu was an ancient Mesopotamian god of wisdom and literature Nebu was his father's god that his father worshipped. His father's name was uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And when you delve into who the god Nebu is, you will actually discover that his name also means announcer. He's the announcer. Which refers to Nebu's prophetic and creative powers that is able to see into the future and it is able to call things to life and it's quite 
ironic that God uses Daniel to reveal the meaning of dreams and to foretell the future with such pre precision. As if God is defying this false deity of the Babylonians that they worshipped. To illustrate that he is the God of wisdom. He is the God of literature. He is the God who sees into the future and knows the end from the beginning and who calls things into life. There's a grave lesson for each and every single one of us here. Be careful who and what you make your God. Because God will defy it. Nebuchadnezzar is the eldest son and successor of Nebuchadnezzar, the founder of the Chaldean kingdom. He's known to be the greatest king that Babylon ever had, the warrior king. He's famous for defeating the Egyptians at Carchemish. You'll read about that in your history books. And he ruled over this beautiful, powerful empire called Babylon. Babylon is referenced 280 times in the Bible, second to Jerusalem. Between Genesis to Revelations, you will find references to Babylonians. Historians believe that Babylon was the first ancient city to reach 200,000 people. It was founded back in Genesis chapter 10 when King Nimrod in his defiance and rebellion against God, in his anti-God agenda, decided to build a tower reaching to the heavens. That's the earliest act of defiance you will find in the scriptures. Scholars say that the structure Nimrod was erecting when he said we will reach to the heavens was actually a pyramid called a ziggurat. One pastor friend of mine was preaching from the book of Daniel and he said, uh, he referenced the scripture and he made reference to the ziggurat and he said, I hope I'm not triggering any of you that are trying to quit cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and the purpose of a ziggurat was not so much to reach the heaven and to reach God in the literal sense. So when Nimrod and the people of Babylon were trying to reach God, the, the gods, they were saying it in this sense, that this temple will become a dwelling place for the gods. And if they really wanted to build a, a building that would reach the heavens, they would have done so on a mountaintop. But they did so on a plain. And so Babylon represents an anti-Christ, anti-God system, world system that is totally opposed to God. So the Bible says in the first year or the third year in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That is the most chilling statement in this book. These two verses set and establish for us the historical and theological backdrop, backdrop for, for Daniel. From the word go, Daniel is trying to let us know who is the focus of the book. That the book of Daniel is not really a hero tale about Daniel. That the book of Daniel is a book about the God of Daniel. And so from the get-go, he's telling us who is in control. And he's saying that it was God who handed Israel, who handed Judah over to Babylon. If it was rewritten in this age, we probably tell it different, wouldn't we? This was the darkest time in the history of Judah and Israel to this point. Their young men were castrated, their city was besieged, their walls were torn down, their temple defiled, the artifacts of the temple defiled. Judah is stripped as a nation. And Daniel tells us that it was the Lord who gave Judah over. We would have blamed it on the devil. 
wouldn't we? The truth is, that sometimes we are giving the credit to the devil for what God is doing. We're giving the devil credit for what God is doing. It's God that's chastising you. It's not the devil trying to test you at times. Sometimes it's God getting up in your face and saying, Hey, I love those whom I chastise. The reason why things are not working out the way you want it to work out is because I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to bring you to repentance. So Daniel unequivocally brings us to this truth. That it was God who handed over the people of Judah to Babylon. In verse 2, he says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim over. Then I want you to drop down and I want you to notice verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into favor. Now I want you to note verse 17. And it was God who gave these four young men knowledge and skill. In the darkest of their moments, God was moving. God was busy. God was not asleep. He was in full command. All hell had broken loose. And God is not running around trying to rig and fix the problem. God is never backed up in the corner. He is sovereign and is in control. And there's never a more complex truth to understand about him than the truth that is in control. The darkest moment of Judah's history, God wanted them to know that he is large and that he is in charge. That he knows and that he foreknows. And that he does things the way he likes it. And how he likes it. And he rules and he super rules. He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. David Platt put it this way, he said, Knowing and understanding the sovereignty of God, is the best foundation for worship in the midst of tragedy. When you know that he had foreseen the events, when you know that he's, he's God and he's on the throne, and he's not running around like a cut chicken, then you know that all things work together for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. It's a wise old Chinese story that reads as follows, and I'm going to say this in closing. A wise Chinese gentleman lived on the troubled Mongolian border. One day his favorite horse, a beautiful white mare, jumped the fence and was seized on the other side by the enemy. His friends came to comfort him. We're so, we're so sorry to hear about your horse, they said. That's bad news. So he replied, how do you know that it's bad news? It might be good news. A week later, the Chinaman looked out of his window to see the horse returning at breakneck speed and alongside a beautiful stallion. He put both horses into an enclosure and his friend came to admire the new addition and said, what a beautiful horse, such good news. The man replied, how do you know that is good news? It might be bad news. The next day, the man's only son decided to try and ride the stallion. The stallion threw him off and he landed painfully, breaking his leg. 
the friends made another visit and all of them were sympathetic saying we so, we're so sorry to hear about this this is such bad news the man replied how do you know it's bad news it might be good news within a month a terrible war broke out between china and mongolia chinese recruiters came through the area pressing through all the young men to join the army and all of them ended up perishing in the army except for the chinaman's son who couldn't go off to war because he broke his leg the gentleman said to his friends you see the things you considered good were actually bad and the things that seemed bad news were actually good and doesn't that remind you of the words of joseph when his brothers threw him into slavery and he's standing before them with tears in his eyes and he says what you meant for evil God meant for my good God is sovereign and God is working behind the scenes he is the unseen hand behind the headlines and things may not be working out the way you want it to work out but the father is not sleeping he's busy He's in control. Yes. He's still on the throne. He rules and he super rules. Amen. And he's working everything out for your good. That's why it's always too soon to quit. Because he's working it out. And though the fog of life circumstances blind you from his hand, doesn't mean because it's a stormy rainy day that the, that the sun is not shining. He's busy. Amen. Amen. Working it out for your favor. Can we stand? Amen. Amen.